Well, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1 this morning, so if you have your Bible, uh, turn over there if you would. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. I would love to give you one uh, at the end of the service. We have one that has your name on it. Uh, as far as I can tell, I don't know that I've ever read a book on church growth. Uh, not that I'm against it, of course, but I, I guess I've figured that as, as leaders, if we do what God's calling us to do, then we can trust him to kind of multiply the efforts, multiply the numbers, so to speak. So I don't, I don't worry about it, to be honest with you. I, don't, I really don't even think much about it at all. Uh, but I do occasionally see blog posts by those who are sort of church growth gurus. And uh, they'll offer their sort of advice or wisdom. And one of the things that I saw recently is by a purported uh, specialist is he said, um, you know, during the Christmas time, because you have visitors coming and people who may not normally be in church, you want to make sure that you choose sermons that are applicable. Choose sermons that, that everyone can apply to their daily lives. Choose a passage that is, um, that's appealing and filled, again, with actionable items. Well, I guess it may indicate something of the darkness of my own heart, but I, when I read that, I decided to do the opposite this morning. Um, <laughs> If I were to ask you what your favorite, favorite passage of the Bible is, I can guarantee, I can guarantee no one would say Matthew 1, 1 through 17, because it is, after all, a genealogy. And no one really loves the genealogies. But this is where we're going to be this morning. You know, we've, this is the third week of our five-week Advent series. Advent uh, being a word that just means coming or arrival, and we're celebrating the arrival of Jesus that's what we celebrate at Christmas time. And as I mentioned, we're kind of zooming out to look at the birth of Jesus in light of the whole story of the Bible and really in light of the history of humanity. Uh, last, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the fall of Adam and Eve, our first parents, their revolt against God in the garden and the implications of that, all the things that now characterize our fallen world, death and hatred and oppression and evil, and murder, and broken marriages, and doubts, and fear, and separation from God. All of those things brought on by the curse, which was the result of, again, the rebellion of our first parents. And then last week, we, we saw a little bit about that deliverer who was foreshadowed in Genesis chapter 3. Even in the middle of this curse, God says, yet the seed of the woman will come and crush the head of Satan. And so last week we got a little better picture through the prophet, of Isaiah, prophet Isaiah of who this deliverer would be. And this morning I want to see the type of people who will be rescued by this deliverer. So Matthew chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 17. I'm going to go, I think, at a, a pretty good pace here. So you, you want to follow along on the screen or in your, your Bible. This is the word of the Lord. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, Zerah, and Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab. Abinadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph. Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat the father of Joram. Joram the father of Uzziah. 
Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, Amos the father of Josiah, Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Matam, Matam the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, Joseph the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now let me take a breather and rest for a minute. Uh, verse 1 begins with the phrase, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The word gene genealogy is, is from a Greek word that's uh, geneseos, which can be translated account or origin. But I like the way that Leon Morris, who's a long time and, and very well-respected biblical scholar, he says the word genealogy is best rendered by the word story. In other words, thus begins the story of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Friday is my day off, typically, and what I tend to do is spend the early, some of the early morning hours uh, finishing up my thoughts, uh, my preparation from Wednesday and Thursday and my studies, and then Janine and I will uh, typically grab lunch and then, uh, if we're able, see a movie. We don't do this every, every Friday, but we love to go out and see movies together because we love a good story. And who doesn't, really? If you want to settle down a hyperactive kid, you start by telling them a story. You say, hey, let me tell you a story about... When my kids were little, they used to, I would tell them a lot of stories, and they would come back to me sometimes at bedtime. They'd say, Daddy, tell us the story about this again. Tell us the story about that. We're actually wired for stories. And of course, the greatest stories are people's stories, the story of people's lives. One of the great honors that I have of being a pastor is people let me in on their stories. Some are amazing, some are heartbreaking, some are these powerful stories of redemption. Some are even, dare I say, miraculous. So as a pastor, people let me in on those stories, and I'm grateful for that. And really, all of us, we, everybody wants to have a meaningful story. I mean, we, we want to know that our story, that our lives actually count for something. They mean something. I've been around a lot of people as they were dying, and, uh, and what's always been interesting to me is, that, is just how concerned people are about their upcoming funeral. And it's interesting to me because that person is not going to be there. I mean, that person is going to be dead. Why do they care what's said at their funeral? But, we, but people want to know that their stories count. They want to know who's going to be there. Is there going to be a, a good turnout? What's going to be said? We want our stories to matter. But how can we make sure? Well, there's only one way, and it has nothing to do really with what we're able to accomplish. There's one way that you can make sure your life will count for something, that you can make sure that your story will have meaning and significance, and that's only by merging your story with the Jesus story. Unless your story is merged with the story of Jesus, the, 
the Son of God, the one who created the world and everything in it, the one whose glory will forever shine, the one before whom every knee will bow, unless it's merged with that story, it will not have the same sort of meaning or significance or ending that you want for your life. The Bible uses the analogy of a branch to a tree. You know, you're walking along, you see a branch on the sidewalk, you, you might step on it, you might kick it out of the way, you might, it has very little significance, right? But the Bible says when that branch is actually connected to the tree, the right tree, it can have great significance. The passage that I just read, this genealogy, Matthew tells us this is the story of Jesus. This is the Jesus story. It begins by saying in verse 1, Jesus is the son of Abraham, which would prove his Jewish roots. He is the son of David, which, was, which would demonstrate his royal lineage. He fit the prophetic description. He is the one that the prophets of old have been speaking about. So the first thing, here's the first thing we see about this story, and it's our first point this morning. From beginning to end, and I'm trying to bridge the gap in this whole Advent series. From beginning to end, the Bible points us to Jesus, the long-awaited and only Savior of the world. Matthew is desperate for his own people to realize that this Jesus, about whom you've heard through the prophets, the son of Joseph and Mary, is the long-anticipated one. He's the one who came to deliver his people from slavery, from oppression, from sin, and to restore peace. Now, there will be two reasons, though, that people would be hard-pressed or reluctant to believe Matthew. And the first reason is Matthew was a tax collector. And if you know anything about the ancient Roman world, uh, tax collectors were despised. They were hated. Because they were known to be corrupt people who would often pad their own pockets with the monies of the people, often peasant people, by overcharging them for taxes. So tax collectors were despised. So, so the people of Israel weren't really likely to listen to Matthew given his status in society. Tax collectors were ranked right up there with prostitutes, thieves, and murderers. This is what Matthew was. And of course, Jesus called him and he immediately left everything that he had and, and knew and followed Jesus. But this was one reason why the people would be slow to receive him. A second reason that people may have had a hard time with Matthew's pronouncement concerning this Jesus is that the people, the Jewish people expected a very different type of savior or deliverer. The Jews expected a conquering king. Someone who would free Israel from Rome's tyranny. A people gatherer who would restore Israel to its rightful place. But here comes, here's Jesus, who arrives not in power and glory, but in filth and squalor. Born into a manger, a stable for animals. He was not born into a family of means, but a poor family, very much on the outside looking in. He was not born surrounded by power brokers, but by who? By shepherds, the most ignored people, the most inconsequential people of society. He was not born to an aristocratic heiress, but to an unwed teenage peasant girl who would spend the rest of her life trying to avoid the stigmatism. 
This was none of what the people expected. They wanted peace, but Jesus came to bring peace, but it was a different kind of peace. It wasn't sort of a global utopia, at least not immediately. He came to bring peace, which meant a restored relationship with God the Father. Friendship with God, can you imagine? Friendship with the creator of the universe. Peace with God. Freedom from guilt and fear. Hope not just for the here and now, but also for eternity. What in order to convince his fellow Jewish people, Matthew's testimony of Jesus had to be both accurate and persuasive. So Matthew begins with this genealogy. Uh, it may seem a strange thing for, us, for Matthew to begin with, this long list of names, but for the Jewish people... Uh, this was critical. They were very interested in, in records of descent. I saw the other day on television that Ancestry.com was offering a 50% off promo for Christmas for their, their DNA kits. Might make for a nice Christmas present uh, for me if I had teenagers who didn't know what to get me. Um, it's now down to $49, you know. Four kids can easily go in on that. But, uh, I, you know, I was... I'm interested in this. I'm very intrigued by this whole idea of ancestry and lineage, even though I know, you know, you think your family's messed up, right? I know, I know what my family is. It's, you know, a series of drug addicts, alcoholics, serial womanizers, and so on. But it's still, this whole idea of, of ancestry really fascinates me. Well, the Jewish community, the ancient Jewish community was very interested in records of descent. In fact, we see this throughout the Old Testament, don't we? Very interested in, in who came from whom. A genealogy was a bit like a resume, so to speak. So Matthew begins kind of like going back into the archives of an old library, pulling out the, the names of history. He says, you, you'll want to check this out. Go read the records. Check out the archives. Now, here's what's most fascinating, and we're going to get into this. It was whom Matthew actually includes in this genealogy. In verse 3, for example, you have Tamar. In verse 5, there's Rahab and Ruth. In verse 6, the wife of Uriah, which we know, of course, was Bathsheba. Verse 16, you have Mary, the mother of Jesus. These are all women. There are women in this genealogy. Now, you can go and look in the ancient world for genealogies with women, and you're going to have a very difficult time finding any. And this is because women had no standing in society in the ancient world. Their voice meant nothing. They couldn't vote. They couldn't inherit property. They couldn't testify in a court of law. <coughs> Women were not to be listened to. Jewish men would say, they would say repeatedly, they would even thank God. God, thank you that I'm not a Gentile and thank you that I'm not a woman. So it was a regular prayer of Jewish people. One of the reasons that Jesus was such a revolutionary is because he loved, cared for, and honored women. And by the way, these five ladies that I, that I mentioned, they're not just women, they're Gentile women. And not only are they, so not only are they women, but they're racial and social outsiders. Ruth, for example, was from Moab. She was a Moabite. The Moabites were despised by the Jews. The Jews hated the Moabites. In fact, they weren't allowed to enter the temple for 10 generations, the Moabites, according to Deuteronomy 23. Rahab, you know a little bit about Rahab. Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute. That's a double whammy. She's a Canaanite, first of all. She's a prostitute. 
And yet here Matthew includes her in this genealogy. Verse 3 says that Judah was the father of Perez and, and Zerah by Tamar. Why mention both of those siblings? Well, because the line only goes through Perez. Why list Zerah? Well, these two were twins, and their mother, Tamar, was Judah's daughter-in-law. Judah had twins by his daughter-in-law. Tamar, who was married to Judah's oldest son, Ur, tricked her father into having relations with her and then got pregnant. This was incest. Why, why in the world would Matthew include these people? Why would he include these people in the Jesus story? Matthew also includes the wife of Uriah, which we know was Bathsheba, who uh, was the end of David. Now, it wasn't Bathsheba's fault. It was David's fault. But still, there's, this is a, a checkered past here. Why in the world would trying to, to establish or solidify the lineage of Jesus Christ, his royal lineage, why would, why would Matthew include these people of all people? What was he thinking? Well, Matthew's trying to make a point. For his fellow Jews. And, and here's what it is. This is our second point this morning. Jesus invites all people into his story, even the immoral, irreligious, and the undesirables. In fact, dare I say, the undesirables are the ones that Jesus came for. Jesus said, Look, it's not the healthy. Who need a doctor? It's the sick. The outcasts, the perpetual sinners, the lustful and greedy idolaters, people who had no hope for salvation on their own. People like you and me, right? People like us. We may clean ourselves up and maybe, maybe we stay out of jail and, and maybe we don't uh, resort to prostitution, but we're no better than anyone that Jesus encountered. We don't love God the way that we should, the way that we're commanded to. We don't love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We don't love God more than we love our own children, our own families, our own very lives. We fall so short of this all the time. We don't live with holy intentions. Our motives are pure, impure. They're stained, corrupt from the deepest parts of our being. But the beautiful thing is that shouldn't defeat us because it was for sinners that Christ came. See, the Jews believed that this Savior, their Savior, would save them exclusively. But Matthew, himself a Jew, wants them to know and us that this Redeemer, this servant king, this long-awaited rescuer invites everyone into his story. Matthew wants to make this clear. It doesn't matter who you are. This is not just for his own people. This is for us. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your family background is. It doesn't even matter what you've done. There's an invitation for you to merge your story with the Jesus story. Well, what does that mean? Well, first of all, we have to realize that the, the Jesus story, the story of the Bible, is the story that tells us the way the world really is. It's objective truth. It's the overarching story into which every other story must fit. The virgin birth is objective truth. Jesus' life and ministry are real events. The death and resurrection of Jesus are historical facts. These are just a few of the events in the Jesus story that help us make sense of the way the world is. But how do we merge our story with Jesus' story? Well, 
God tells us that he's in the business of reconciling, making right, bringing into a right situation or position all things to himself. The biblical story encompasses all of reality. It begins with creation of all things. It ends with the renewal of all things. It offers, again, an interpretation of the meaning of cosmic history. So our reality must find a place in this story. The Apostle Paul says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and then entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. We live in a messed up world. Now, We've talked about this. I've highlighted this for the past couple of weeks, and you don't need me to show you that. We know that. We know that our world is not right. Our country is not right. Right? Our, our, our schools, our neighborhoods, our homes, our marriages, our families, we see the brokenness everywhere. We see it in our own hearts and the guilt we feel, the shame we experience, the, the lack of significance that plagues us. One theologian and social commentator says, we live in an age of despair, but it's a smiling despair, softened by consumer convenience, driving through for a happy meal along the way. Into our age, Jesus says, I came to bear your guilty despair far away and to replace it with joy inexpressible. See, Jesus was born, lived, died, rose again, which no one else has ever done, by the way, to pay the penalty for our sins, to absorb our sin and guilt and shame, and actually give us real lasting joy. And we merge our story with Jesus' story when we repent of our rebellion and our self-reliance and even our independence, and we run to Jesus in humble faith, believing that he is who he says he was, believing in what he has done and surrendering our lives to his lordship and the advancement of his kingdom. How does the advancement of Christ's kingdom factor into your life goals? When you think about all you want to accomplish, maybe vocationally, maybe family-wise, maybe in terms of your, your personal financial situation, how does the advancement of Christ's kingdom fit in your own personal goals? Is it a blip on your radar? Is it something that consumes you? If we're not trusting in Jesus alone and his righteousness, if we're not seeking first his kingdom, then we're living for our own purposes. And in effect, we're demonstrating that we really believe that we are our own saviors and that our kingdom is what matters most. We are writers of our own story. At least we believe that. And of course, that never ends well. Now, notice in Matthew's genealogy, it doesn't begin with, here is the book of all the things that you must do to get right with God. It says the book of the story of Jesus. This is how it begins. He doesn't begin by saying, um, here are the steps that you must take to gain God's approval. He doesn't begin by saying, here is your path for a personal improvement plan. No, it says here is the story of Jesus. 
I, got, I have an exercise for you, okay? Now, I'm not gonna, it's not a test or a quiz. I'm not going to ask anybody to, to raise your hand. I'm not going to single anybody out, so don't worry about that. If you've ever taken any classes on journalism and, or math, mass media, I had a few of those uh, in my career, you know that writing a headline takes a certain amount of skill. Capturing all the events in a single summarizing statement takes a bit of skill. Every time you click on the news, whatever your favorite news station is, before you get to the article, someone has taken all the content of that article and they've summarized it in a, in a headline. Even if it's a sport, you go to ESPN or whatever, if it's a sports article, there's a headline there. Well, I'm going to ask you to think about what headline you would give for the scenario that I'm going to describe for you. So as I'm going along, think about what headline you would give for this. Imagine a scenario where there's an entire village of people who are dying with a terminal disease. And nobody knows what's going on. Nobody can figure this out. Nobody has made any headway in addressing this disease. The symptoms are fairly wide-ranging, affecting the villagers physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. And these folks, again, they've tried everything that they can imagine to remedy their situation. They've tried changing their diets, exercise, breathing techniques, yoga, Pilates, adjusting their sleep patterns, positive thinking. They've tried everything, including every drug under the sun. They're not getting any better, but in fact, they're getting worse. And they see the people they love are dying. As you can imagine, I mean, they're absolutely hopeless, they're helpless, they're despondent. The people they care about are dying, and they themselves are dying. And they feel the pain, they feel this, they don't know what to do. They, they know that something is wrong, but they can't fix it. This, the pain becomes stronger every day, and they're just dwindling away. Their relationships are strained, there's stress. No one has an answer, which means they have no hope for the future. But then, out of nowhere, comes a mysterious stranger that these dying people, they don't even know. And the stranger owes them nothing. He doesn't owe them anything. But the stranger says, I've come to heal you. And I'm going to make you well. I'm going to heal you fully. He promises to do that. And in fact, he brings about complete and total healing. Incredibly, through no effort of the dying people, this stranger restores life and wellness to this village, to all those who will actually receive him. He does what no one else can do. A group of people who are essentially dead have been made alive. They were dying. They were hopeless. They've been given hope. They've been given life. Now, as the stranger looks on the recovered villagers who now have an incredible hope for the future, he says, I'm not even going to leave you. I'm going to be, be with you all the way. But then he goes on to say, by the way, you would do well to establish a habit of exercising, and you should really stay away from hot dogs, onion rings, and fried pickles. So this is what he says. Now, now you've been thinking about that. Now, what is the headline that you would give that story? Is it people told to exercise and eat better? How many, no one's going to say they said that, right? How many said that? that that's the way you would summarize it. People told to exercise and eat better. Or maybe alert. Hot dogs are dangerous. Is that the way that you, is that the headline you would give? The headline has to be something like this. Mysterious stranger saves dying village. 
or abandoned, left for dead, people given new life. That's the only headline that will work for that scenario, right? Anything, if we try to make it about something the villagers are supposed to do, we've missed the point of the story. How foolish if we summed up the story by saying, fried pickles are bad, what's in your pantry? <laughs> that, that, that would be dumb, wouldn't it? That wouldn't make sense. But that's what we do when we make the headline of the Bible primarily about what we're supposed to do rather than what God has done for us in Jesus. The big story the Bible has as its turning point, the birth of Jesus. The birth of Jesus actually serves as the hinge on which the entire Bible turns. Actually, as I said before, the whole Bible's about Jesus, the one who was shrouded in mystery, spoken about by the prophets, revealed in the Gospels, the one who's come to save a hopeless and helpless and sin-cursed people. Here's our final point this morning. The Jesus story is first. News about what God has done, not instructions on what we should do. Now, I have to admit to you, that's not the way that I was taught growing up. That's not the way that I was taught the Bible is to be read. I was taught that the Bible is about me. How I'm supposed to live, how I'm supposed to act, how I'm supposed to behave. And people would occasionally brandish the Bible against me. This is not what the Bible says. I was taught it's actually about me and my behavior. Now certainly, in response to what God has done, He does call us to do things. I mean, make no mistake. But we dare not make the headline of the Bible, the main point of the Bible, God's instructions on how we are to live. And yet some people just can't get away from it, can they? I mean, they just cannot get away from this. Every sermon, every Bible study, every lesson, every family devotion seems to be about what God tells us to do. And it centers around some challenge, right? It's all about the challenge. It's all about what we're supposed to do. I love what pastor and author Martin Lloyd-Jones writes. He says, we have somehow got a hold of the idea that error is only that which is outrageously wrong. And we do not seem to understand that the most dangerous person of all is the one who does not emphasize the right things. All this error in emphasizing or emphasis has devastating consequences. If we look at the Bible, the Jesus story, as ultimately about what we're supposed to do, then what it does, it takes the cross away and it replaces it with a ladder. A ladder mentality. Where we're constantly trying to work our way up, earn our way closer to God by climbing up just one more rung. I did my devotions today. Maybe I've advanced a rung. I was really nice to a stranger. Maybe I've gone up two rungs in one day. I'm getting closer to God every day. And it replaces the cross with a ladder. This mindset is the source of so many of our, really, our emotional ills, our fears, our phobias, our relational issues. About four years ago, Janine and I met a young couple, just showed up at our church. We didn't know where they'd come from, didn't know anything about their background. They were in their late 20s, early 30s, and uh, they lived in a neighboring town, and they started coming every week. They showed up out of nowhere. They were there every week. They never missed, and, and I had the occasion after, I don't know, three or four Sundays of seeing them to, to meet them at the welcome desk, and I said, did you guys just move, you know, for some other place? And they said, no, we, we've lived here as, soon as, as long as we've been married. But we've just never been in church. We've never gone to church. 
And then the young lady, and it's just so sweet. She just paused and, you know, how the, sometimes it's kind of awkward. It seems like it, was, it seemed like a, a long pause, but she said, you know, we've tried. We've tried to go to church, but it just seems like every time we go to church, we just leave so beaten down and so hopeless with more things to do that we weren't doing, more things to stop doing that we were doing. And then she said, we started coming here, we started hearing about grace and we started hearing about gospel. We started hearing about all that God has done to save us, to forgive us, to cleanse us. And she said, we, we didn't ever want to go to church. Now we don't want to miss church. We want to hear. Tell us more about what God has done for us. Tell us more, as Pastor Adam said, about the love of God that we sang about together. We want to hear more about this. Tell us about this incredible, holy, awesome God who loved a broken and sinful world so much that he actually sent his own son in, in my place who would die in my place. Tell us more. We asked this young couple to join our small group and we met on Sunday afternoons at five and they started coming regularly and faithfully and we saw a real gospel awakening take place. There, we saw them understand who Jesus was. We saw them in repentance. Their marriage was strengthened. See, a misplaced emphasis had crushed them. But the gospel gave them light. If, life. If we understand that the Bible is the story of God's relentless and immeasurable love for a sinful and undeserving people, Again, I love he demonstrated by sending his own son to die. That actually leads to gratitude. It leads to worship. It leads to hope. It leads to freedom. But if we think the Bible's about all we're supposed to be doing, that leads to fatigue, exhaustion, despondence. And in many cases, it leads to just abandonment. Like this young couple, that Travis and Ashley, they said, we just, we just couldn't do it anymore. We just couldn't do it. Well, at no point in the year is the emphasis of the Bible more obvious than during the season of Advent. To a lost, dying, and diseased world, God says, I've come all the way to you to rescue you. He, didn't say, he doesn't say, you do your part and I'll do mine. He doesn't say, you know what, I'm going to come halfway and I'll wait for you there. No, he says, I'm coming all the way. I'm sparing no expense to come to you. I'm going to come all the way to deliver you and to restore you. This is the mystery of the incarnation. God with us. God tabernacling with us. God become flesh. So that we could actually be forgiven. The Jesus story is the announcement of what God has done to save us. Not what we should do. Long before Jesus came, the prophet Isaiah predicted his arrival. He says this in Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is what? Given. Given. To us a son is given. Salvation is a gift. To us a son is given. The son was given to bear our sins, to pay the penalty for our rebellion. The son was given so that we could receive something we could never earn. The Son was given to give rest to the weary, freedom to the captive, sight to the blind, water to the thirsty. It's not something that is earned, but it's something received. See, if you're drowning, if you're drowning, what you don't need is someone yelling at you, kick harder, flap your arms more, 
If you're drowning, you don't tell, need someone to tell you to put in more effort. You need someone to throw you a life preserver. Because if you kick harder, what's going to happen? You're just going to go down faster. You need someone to say, no, here is your salvation. Here is your rescue. Some of you may be drowning right now. Some of you, you're trying to do this on your own. And maybe, maybe you come to church every once in a while, or maybe when someone invites you out of guilt, you show up. But, but really, you, you, you're holding the reins of your own life. You are functioning as your own Savior. You believe, hey, I, I can be good enough, and I can do enough, and I can kind of try to do this thing and stay out of jail and stay, you know, uh, off drugs and so on. And then you believe, I'm doing okay, actually. But you actually know in those moments of silence, which maybe you try to avoid, you know you're drowning in the weight of your own sin, in the weight of your own independence. Some of you have been rescued, but you keep insisting on swimming on your own. You know you've been saved by grace, but you think the rest is up to you. The Jesus story is news about what God has done. It's a story into which everyone is invited, but it requires trusting, believing in the ultimate story writer. The one who created the world, who will restore the world through the person of his son. It requires believing that this God is good and faithful and we're not and trusting in him for everything. Let's pray.